Spring is here, and you can now get almost anything you need for your sunny days delivered with Uber Eats. What do we mean by almost? Well, you can't get a well-groomed lawn delivered, but you can get a chicken parmesan delivered. A cabana? That's a no. But a banana? That's a yes. A nice tan? Sorry. Nope. But a box fan? Happily yes. A day of sunshine? No. A box of fine wines? Yes. Uber Eats can definitely get you that. Get almost, almost anything delivered with Uber Eats. Order now. Alcohol in select markets. Product availability may vary by region. See app for details. Hear that? Believe it or not, summer is just around the corner. Luckily, ArmorAll, America's most trusted auto appearance brand, has what your car needs to get that perfect summer shine. Plus, now through May 31st, we'll give you $5 for every 20 you spend on ArmorAll products. That means car wash pods, protectant, tire shine, you name it. Find out how to get your $5 rebate at armorall.com. ArmorAll, less work, more clean. Terms apply. If you went on a road trip and you didn't stop for a Big Mac or drop a crispy fry between the car seats or use your McDonald's bag as a placemat, then that wasn't a road trip. It was just a really long drive. At participating McDonald's. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hello and welcome to the Bike Radar podcast. Brought to you from the team behind Cycling Plus, MBUK and BikeRadar.com. Welcome to the Bike Radar podcast. I'm Rob Spedding. I have the grand title of content director of Bike Radar. I also spent over a decade as the editor of Cycling Plus magazine. And I am joined today by Mr. Thomas, Tom Marvin. He is the technical editor on Bike Radar. Technical editor of Bike Radar also erstwhile contributed towards MBUK and Cycling Plus. So, a bit of everything. He does a bit of everything. Welcome, Tom. And also... Matthew Allen, he is the senior writer over there on Bike Radar. Good morning. Hi, Rob. I've also worked for Cycling Plus, so I have the scars too. He has indeed, and they're very lovely scars. So we've got a couple of subjects today. We're going to talk about two things. That's what a couple means. Um, The first thing, we're going to talk about rules, specifically the rules. And we're also going to talk about gravel bikes, because we know everyone loves gravel bikes That is a fact. But we're going to kick off by talking about the rules. If you don't know what the rules are, these are quite a road bike specific uh, subject, I think. But mountain bikers, please don't switch off. Um, They first emerged at the end of uh, the 2000s, the early 2000s. What do we we call that? I think the... The noughties, that's it, yeah. Yeah. So about 2009, I'm not reading this, by the way, off of anything. But about 2009, they were founded by... Two, two cyclists, two roadies, Frank Strack and Brett Kennedy. And they kind of started off, I, I think, as a reasonably light-hearted look at... You, you've got to consider 2009, that was the, the start of the road cycling boom, really, when, when road cycling was starting to kick off, starting to take off. I was two years into the edis- editorship of uh, Cycling Plus. I'm not saying I'm responsible for the road cycling Take boom. Take some credit, Rob. Uh, yeah, it's you probably me. You wrote that way. I kind of start. I, they wrote the rules... 
because of me. I, I think that's fair. I think they I think would you're, agree. You're probably sort of cyclists <laughs> that they probably saw and was like, yeah, we need some rules. Yeah, they probably did. So Frank and Brett, they is a, an internet sensation. You should mention Velominati because that's where that, it appeared. Yes. That's who they are. They are self-identified as the Velominati. What does that Keepers mean? Keepers of the cog. The rules are an etiquette guide which appear on the Velominati website and they list basically everything that as a proper roadie you're supposed to respect. Now, it's largely to do with style stuff about your kit and how your bike is set up, also how you behave towards other people. And while in some ways they could be seen as a valid starting point for uh, shaping your personality as a roadie, we're going to talk about how maybe it's time that we stepped back and thought that actually those rules are a bit prescriptive and also potentially even quite elitist and exclusive. And the rules are rules are there to be broken, as uh, as my teachers and my dad always told me. So that's a good thing. So how many rules are there, Tom? Well, there's there's ninety four. I understand it. Well, because it says ninety five on thing, but they don't have number thirteen. Oh, but why don't ninety five minus one is ninety four? Why don't they have number thirteen? Because thirteen's an unlucky number. And that's also actually one of the rules, isn't it? About it because it, it's um, it's about some of it's about racing, road bike racing. There is a particular rule that actually a lot of roadie racers. And I don't know if it's the same in mountain biking, Tom, but they adhere to the rule that if you've got number 13, you wear it upside down. That's, that's not adhered to in mountain biking. It's supposed to not? cancel out the bad luck. And interestingly, I was number 13 in a race, didn't turn it upside down and did fall over. So well, evidence. So, yeah, rules. So that ends our conversation about the rules. Yeah. They work. Yeah. But let's go back to the, the topic. Is So these rules were created and... They're a bit of fun, but also there was some seriousness to it because, like we said, it was the start of the road cycling boom. So there were obviously kind of these unwritten rules that old road racers and old club riders probably adhered to, although they weren't written down rules. They weren't presented. They're not from British Cycling or the US Cycling Association. That's probably not what it's called. But, you know, they aren't official rules, but they seem to have almost become particularly amongst... Should we say mammals? Mammals. Kind of something that you. Well, I, th- get... I, th- I think the point of the rules is that they, they give you something to belong to, don't mm. they? You know, like it, it sort of it signals you out as someone who is dedicated to cycling, as someone who you know, like wants to sort of project an image that they may yeah. be better than they possibly are. But also, if you are really good, then it's sort of you want to fit in, and everyone's doing it, right? Yeah, cycling's a very tribal activity, and donning. The uniform is definitely part of that. There is a big part of club cycling in the UK, and I think elsewhere as well, where it is sort of like LARPing as a pro cyclist because you adopt many of the things that pro cyclists do. You wear matching kit, your club kit. You ride in chain gangs or pelotons. And, of course, you race as well, obviously not at the same level as the pros. Cat 3 heroes. There are a lot of Cat 3 heroes. And some of the the rules are specific to riding in groups, uh, how to behave on the road, and actually they are really sensible. You know, a lot of them are, are there for yeah to help maintain no crashing, so that pelotons and groups, or whatever you want to call it, group rides do work properly. Because when they don't, when it starts to fall apart, people get shot off the back, people crash, people have issues. So some of them are legit. Some of them arguably less legit. We haven't actually read out any rules. Okay, should we talk about some rules that we don't like? Yes. Um, I'm going to start leg shaving. In full disclosure, two out of the three people at this table, including me, have shaved legs. 
Two out of the three, including you. Do you have shared legs? Tom. Tom does. I shave my legs for the error benefits, as I've proved. I do not shave my legs, and I am a road cyclist predominantly. Um, And I, I kind of, I have done it in the past, and usually if I am going on a big launch, because I've done that a few times, where you know the other journos are probably going to have. Fully shaven bodies, because that's what cycling Shaven and oiled. Yeah, that's what we do, as, or some of them do. Warren Rossiter, our tech editor in particular. Um, but I kind of made a decision this year that, you know what, I don't want to... Sh- I, I, my background is running as well, actually. So before I became a cyclist, I was a serious runner. Runners don't shave their legs. Do they have rules? They... Not in the same. It's not the same kind Very of culture. Shorts, it's not. It's tiny vests. little shorts, vests where you can see your nipples through, yeah. and and um, yeah, and that's basically trainers. it, really. You know, the rules are there. There aren't that many rules in running. Right. But if you rock up at a big group ride where there's some pretty fast people, chances are the vast majority of those guys are going to have shaved legs, yeah. and you may actually stand out if you've got hairy legs. And there, there are benefits too. Shaving your legs. Well, you look cool. You look cool. Do you look cool? I mean, the first time I shaved my legs was when I went for a group ride with my brother-in-law in Australia, the first group ride I ever went on. And he said, he said, ah, mate, look, you got to shave your legs. Great accent. It was a very good accent. He's from Cambridgeshire. Um, <laughs> and I shaved my legs. And it was, uh, it was weird. It was, I ruined their shower. I ruined my legs. But... I did feel when I turned up on that group ride, obviously with incredibly white British legs with all these tan Australians, I kind of felt, oh, actually, this makes sense. But I've kind of just got to the point where I don't care what people think about me. If people are judging my cycling ability on the her sootness or her sweetness of my legs, then they're the idiots. Yeah, I think that that is basically what it boils down to, isn't it? Like, personally... I do think that they look better in Lycra. But having a rule like that as a thing that people are actually going to seriously follow and where if you turn up at a club ride, people are going to look askance at you is incredibly exclusive to new riders who probably maybe at some point in their cycling journey will choose to shave their legs. But for it to be sort of almost a compulsory thing just seems madness. I just find it a nice little... You know, I've got, I'm in my shower, I've got a bit of music playing. It's a bit of me Can- time. Candles? Candles. And yeah, I, I don't know. I, I, I did it because we did a, the feature in Cycling Plus that's coming out this month. Yes. On um, how to go faster for free. Went down to a wind tunnel. It was really interesting. Um, and I had hairy legs when I arrived. And when I left, I didn't have hairy legs. And I saved eight watts at 35 kilometers an hour into a headwind. Um, so, you know, it is faster. So, so that saving of watts, mm. how, how does that relate over a what an hour two hours of riding over a hundred miles of riding which is how we measured it i mm-hmm. think um it was about four minutes okay so as a as a sportive rider as a sportive rider you've got there you, you've had time to get your pint before your mate's finished if he's got hairy legs and it also makes um putting on things like suntan lotion or if you crash putting you know uh creams on yep. a lot nicer um and mine will remain like this until i start wearing trousers again because frankly a mid-length leg hair looks even more ridiculous than either hairy legs or shaved legs. So I've got to wait till I wear trousers again. I always think shaving your legs and then wearing trousers makes it feel like you're wearing someone else's trousers. When you get into a bed with fresh seats and freshly shaved legs, it's the most... 
Let's move on. So it's a kink. But yes, so, let's find so a, let's we, find another we haven't got an about. agreement with that role, have we? Whereas I, I, I'm, gonna, I'm probably going to keep my legs hairy. I think. I'm going to keep mine shaved and, until I wear trousers. And I'll go back and forth because I yeah. always do that. What else in there annoys you or, or do you not agree with? Slamming or? your stem. So there's a, there's a kind of platonic ideal of what a bike should look mm. like, a race, like a road race bike. So yeah. it's super aggressive fit, stem slammed right down on top of the headset cover, um, big saddle to bar drop, uh, overall very pro aesthetic. And there's also stuff about like gearing and stuff. But we're talking about the stem here. Mm. So basically, yes, it looks cooler. A bike looks more aesthetically balanced like that. It looks more aggressive. It looks more racy. All of that is true. But the reality is you should set up your bike in a way that's actually comfortable for you to ride and doesn't injure you. Uh, I'm, I'm going to put my hand up here and say I am basically basic when it comes <laughs> to what I like in, a in most things. In, in, in most Life, things. Yeah. Um, but when it comes to bicycles and road bikes in particular... I, you know, when you get all these like skinny, classic-looking steel. There's a video in in, in the shed recently. Mm-hmm. And it was like skinny steel frames, and everyone was like, "Whoa!" I was like, "God, that looks shit." I like uh, an aero, carbon aggressive bike, and even to the detriment of my comfort over a long ride, I will slam my stem to make it look better. Which is interesting because we had a uh, one of these podcasts. We talked about th- the best things you can spend your money on mm. as a cyclist: bike fit. Mm. was one of those things. And I've obviously had a few bike fits. I am 46. I can't touch... I can barely bend over to touch my knees, let alone my toes. So slamming the stem to me... And the rules are quite... It's rule 45, by the way. It's quite It's quite prescriptive. A maximum stack height of two centimetres is allowed below the stem and a single five millimetre spacer must always, always be stacked above. If I had a stem... Unless the front end of the bike was 16 feet tall, mm. I wouldn't be able to walk as soon as I... But I wouldn't be able to get on the bike, for starters. And so it, it's kind of... That one, to me, does seem But you ridiculous. would look great on the bike. Matthew, I mean, you you, 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 were, you, were, you were a racer. Yeah, so I went through the complete dorky, roady journey where I used to ride a bike with a 130mm minus 17-degree stem God. slammed right down. Um, and I was young enough and flexible enough to get away with it, despite the fact that I may have actually been injuring myself in the long term. But the reality is that was probably quite a stupid thing to do. And these days I'm much more relaxed about it and I just ride what feels comfortable to me. That's fair, I think, isn't it? I mean, you've got to ride what's comfortable because if you aren't comfortable, you're not going to enjoy cycling and enjoying cycling is what we're all about, what cycling should all be about. And to a certain extent, some of those rules... Some of the rules probably do are to the detriment of cycling. Feel like they could be to the detriment of cycling enjoyment. And me talking about you know having a bad back, not being very flexible, liking comfort actually does play into another one of the rules, number five, which is harden the harden fudge f- fudge up. You know, HTFU, and that that's kind of and that's that's quite that's something you hear quite a lot i think as particularly that the the art of suffering as a road cyclist so matthew we, tom we do fetishize suffering in road cycling mm. in a way that sometimes just sort of amusing I, I know for example that the suffer fest made a big thing of that that was a series of i think they're probably still going they are still going yeah. training videos that focused on hurting yourself I doing have. really intense interval sessions on a turbo trainer um Obviously, if you are training seriously to race, there's going to be suffering. Mm. But we we place suffering on this weird pedestal in cycling. And again, that's something that can be 
quite exclusive because people cycle for all sorts of yeah. reasons. I mean, I personally got into cycling originally because I was riding a bike to uni, but then subsequently went on to become obsessed with road bikes. Mm. And as people in cycling media, I think that we maybe should not ignore all the other people who don't want to emulate pros, don't yeah. want to suffer, probably aren't interested in racing at all, but who would still be interested in riding road bikes and doing big rides. And I think there's a whole world out there of people who are now doing other types of cycling, like endurance road cycling, gravel cycling, which we'll talk about later, who just don't see cycling as a thing like why fetishise the suffering. I think, I think this almost plays into a wider discussion that's going on in, in society as general with, you know, when it comes down to sort of the man up phrase, you know, people mm. say, actually, you know, like... I don't know where I'm really going with this, but it, it feels like, like you're saying, like we, we're, we're being told that suffering is good, like it's a proud and yeah. and like strong thing to do, and actually, it isn't always. Oh, yeah, you, you millennial snowflakes. So. Yeah, I know. Yeah. Yeah. D- does anyone on their deathbed say, "Gosh, I wish I'd suffered more"? Yeah, no, I don't think so. I mean, no. Yes, I mean, no, they don't. <laughs> I doubt. I very much doubt it. And and that harden the fudge up, um, actually, sort of plays into another one, which is it, it doesn't get. Easier, you just ride faster. I think that's another one, isn't it? Which is mm. another I think, one. I mean, that's, that's, and, that's, that's a, kind a of, basic that's premise kind of, of a how training yeah. works. Yeah, that, that's true. And, and all the, the stuff about training in there is in, in the rules. I, I kind of mm. think that's all. It's all valid, but you don't have to harden the fuck up. Let's say it. You, you don't have to do that. But to it's be a, a we even use the word training. Um, a lot of people talk about training who aren't competing, and I would always ask the question: What are you, what training, are you training for? for? That's why I'm quite chubby. Because I ain't racing. I thought it was your diet. (laughs) (laughs) My diet's changed considerably in this past month, and I'm still chubby. Changed to Toblerones. Changed from Mars bars. I'm I'm not not training because I'm not bothered about going faster. You know, if I raced, then maybe I'd want to train. But I'd only. I'm never going to reach like. I'm never going to. I have podium in races, so that's a lie. But I ride for fun, you know. So yeah. That's why I don't have Strava. I don't, you know, do training peaks or this sort of jazz because for me, it's, it's not about enjoying. Should we do another rule? What about Let's do one sa- more what rule. About who? Hands up. This won't work on on a podcast. Hands up, or say out loud who's got a saddle bag on their road bike. No, I've got a nice little um, sort of tool wrap thing tool on mine wrap, at the moment, yeah. which is. Kind of a saddle bag, but not a big bulky thing. Is uh, your bike a nice carbon aero race bike uh, that you just that ruined? It's very Gucci Imonda that I'm riding at the moment. You've ruined so, it. Um, uh, I have, I have a small. Yeah, I have a small one on the back so of my we, uh, Ribble. We should talk about what the rule says. It's rule twenty nine. And no it, you, European posterior man satchels, as they are known in the uh, in the trade. So saddle bags have no place on a road bike. So this is a stupid rule because. Obviously, in the world of racing, people don't carry stuff because they've got support vehicles and stuff coming behind them to bring them spare wheels and whatnot. But if you look at footage or photos of pros training on their own, you know, training from home, which they do for some parts of the year, they'll generally have a saddlebag because you need to put a tube in. And the rules state that you should put all that stuff in your jersey pockets. But if you're a svelte, skinny roadie like me, mm. and you've got three very small pockets on the back of your jersey, you just look stupid they do weigh if you, you down, fill they? them with stuff. And I don't see how looking like you've got some sort of growth on your lower back <laughs> is more aesthetically pleasing than just having a very small saddlebag. As long as it's well designed. Yeah, I mean, I think... 
We're not going to get Jack a... Luke levels of like having a massive leather testicle hanging off the saddle. Jack Luke, for those of you who don't know Jack, uh, doesn't have a massive leather, leather testicle, but he is our he's a, our assistant editor on Bike Radar. He's kind of a, a, a he likes he's 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 different. He he would probably like the things exactly opposite to what I like, and he'd actually probably be completely anti rules. I think, wouldn't he? Oh yeah, I'm sure he would. Yeah, uh, check him out on uh, on Bike Radar's YouTube channel. Uh, there are good reasons to not have an enormous saddlebag on a road mm. bike because it'll swing around and it will feel terrible. But having a very small one that holds perhaps an inner tube, a tire lever, and maybe a multi tool is fine. I think the the one thing that the sort of Admission I give, or, or like the 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 thing I would allow, is that a saddlebag allows you to have those things on the bike at all times. Because I forget stuff yeah. all the time, and I'll go riding, and I'll have forgotten my tire levers. So, if it's a training ride, if you're riding on your own, if you're not racing, fine. The thing actually, what I've liked is those little caddy things you can put in your bottle cage because you can have two bottle cages on your bike, and if you've got one bottle and one with everything else in it, I think that's legit. What if you only ever do massive rides and you need those? Well, you, should, you can stop at petrol stations and buy a can of coke. What if it's uh, Easter Sunday or Christmas Day? <laughs> if you haven't thought this through. You should be having a life and doing something with your family. <laughs> okay, well, that's fine. That's I, actually one of the rules is that bike comes first, bike and comes that's first. another quite stupid one. As as a family man, that's the one I, I struggle most with. Um, I am not... Um, uh, the, the rule comes from... I think they've got the rule from Sean Kelly. It was something he said when his wife uh, says about it. He leant against his Citroen AX... As a former Citroen AX GT owner, obviously, you know, GT. never lean the bike against a Citroen AX GT, but the family, family, of course, does come first. So, so the rules, I do think, I mean, we've, we've discussed a few there. We could, we could probably pick holes or agree with all 94. Um, but it'd be, I guess it'd be good to hear from, from, uh, from the listeners, uh, you know, what, what ones they adhere to, what they think, what rules should be in the rules. Comment on the Bike Radar article that will accompany this podcast. Along, and there'll be links for the Velomatini website in that as well. Velomatini. Velomatini. Whatever. <laughs> uh, Rob, what are you going to be doing between the 12th and the 15th of September? I haven't decided yet. I mean, September, my dad's birthday's coming up, but that's a week after. You know what? I'm pretty much free. Oh, I'm going to be on holiday, but you should be at the NEC in Birmingham for the cycle show. The um, Cycle we, Show. The Cycle Show, and we're partnering with them. Um, the, it is between those dates, 12th to the 15th, although only come on the 12th if you're in the trade. Sorry, public. Um, tickets, now they cost £15.50, but if you're a, a podcast listener or a Cycling Plus reader or an MBUK reader, you can get 10% off with the code C plus one or MBUK one, capitalised, thirteen ninety five. Absolute bargain. Do you know what's best? I don't. Tell me. You get to meet the Bike Radar team. The Bike Radar team will be there, indeed. Except the ones that are on holiday. Except, Except for me. Tom. You won't meet Tom, but... You won't meet I, me either, actually. I, I, you'll meet me. <laughs> uh, I'm there in the kissing booth. Um, yeah, it's, it's a, it is actually... Joe in a Party is a really good show if you are into road cycling, mountain biking, if you're thinking about buying an e-bike, if you want to get a commuter bike, come along to the Cycle Show. There are so many exhibitors there, so many great I've bikes. I've got some lists. I've got some Tell lists. us who's there. So if you're into your road bikes, um, you'll get the chance to ride the latest bikes from BH, Rose, Ribble, Form, 
Swift Carbon focused Shand, probably more as well. There's yeah. a test track there. That's on the Cycling Plus test track, yeah. no less. And if you're on the uh, MTB test track, supported by MBUK magazine and built by Kai Fort, who is a legend of mm-hmm. the free ride world, um, you can ride bikes from BH, Ribble, Surly, Genesis, Corotech, Caliber, Cannondale, and Focus, uh, as well as some e bikes. So that's actually some brands there that are less um, well represented in normal demo fleets. So it'd be quite interesting there. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah. 12th to the 15th of September. Um, we'll put a link in the article um, to get those tickets. And don't forget 10% off C plus one, MBUK one, 13.95. Fantastic. And it's not just bikes. There are also going to be some talks on the main stage. Commuter also sponsoring an advice stage at Bike Radar involved here. It's going to be a fantastic weekend. See you there. Brilliant. Something the rules don't mention. Yeah, gravel bikes because in 2009 certainly when the rules started gravel bikes didn't exist gravel did bikes they? as we well, mm. yeah. gravel bikes as we know it didn't exist did they exist cyclocross bikes did that's just a gravel bike right no I, I think and as myself and Matthew did some prep for this surprisingly enough thank god someone did yeah and well, gravel bikes as we know obviously it's, it's a big marketing term there's a lot of great bikes and I'm mm. I'm I, I love gravel riding. Like I think it's one of the best things to happen in the cycling world for a long time. It's probably worth us actually just sort of putting out why we're talking about gravel bikes. So we've had quite a lot of feedback, haven't we, from readers and from, from Bike Radar users that gravel bikes, just like disc brakes, tubeless tires for roads, are just a marketing thing that the bike companies have put out there so we buy more bikes. And we're going to talk about whether we believe that or whether actually gravel bikes are a good thing and you should all buy one. Part of the rules... You know, the number of bikes, M plus one, is a gravel bike a good M plus one, or is a gravel bike just the only bike you actually need? Take it away, boys. Do you want to explain what a gravel bike is? Oh, okay, I'll explain what a gravel bike is. A gravel bike is not an endurance road bike, and it's not a cyclocross bike. The geometry of a gravel bike compared to a cross bike is longer, slacker, and lower because it's not designed for short races, mm-hmm. it's designed for longer rides. So yep. that makes it sound like an endurance road bike, which it almost Gearing's is. Gearing's different as well. Uh, uh, yeah, okay, and the gearing's different. The difference then with an endurance road bike, again, you've got gearing differences, mm-hmm. you've got obviously much more mud clearance, and slight geometry differences, but maybe a little bit, you know, depending on, on the, the sort of the aggressiveness of the gravel bike. Because within gravel bikes, there's not just a gravel bike, there's... There's almost touring bikes it's all the way through to spectrum, race bikes. Yeah. It's a huge yeah. And we should be clear that generally speaking, gravel bike always means a drop bar bike. Yeah. yeah. Unless somebody specifies it's a flat bar gravel bike, and then you get into this whole question of at what point does a flat bar gravel bike become a cross country mountain bike or Ooh, a hybrid? Yeah. So the, the, it is, of course, it's ambiguous. Like everything in cycling is ambiguous. And, you know, okay, oh, is it a marketing thing to make you buy more bikes? Well, hang on a minute. It's the bicycle industry. It is a of business. course they want to sell you more bikes. Yeah. It's how companies exist and make profit. If you're, if the company you work for, dear listener, didn't produce new products and wanted their customers to buy new things, you would be out of a job. Of course they want you to buy a gravel bike. And you don't have to buy one. And you don't, and you yeah, don't, don't buy, buy one. one. If you don't want to, don't buy one. Yeah, but, a point that we come back to a lot is that the bike industry bringing out new products doesn't suddenly magically render the ones you own unrideable or non-functional. No. Yeah. So don't, don't worry about It actually makes some classic vintage machines. Yeah. Well, there's that initial dip where it just looks really rubbish and old, and then 10 years later, rose-tinted spectacles go on and it becomes retro and cool again. We all like gravel bikes. I love gravel bikes. Yeah. They're I fun. think they're great. Is it, would it be, you know, we we are here in the UK, uh, that's where we're based. 
our roads are like gravel roads. So that's that's something we quite often say is, oh, yeah, you know, you might not need a gravel bike, but our roads are terrible. Ha ha, it's a bit of a running, it's not a funny gag because our roads are terrible. But gravel bikes to me, I, I do like them, I'll put it out there, but gravel bikes to me definitely make sense if you are in Colorado or California or Wisconsin or somewhere like that where you've got really big fire roads that you can go for miles and miles on so so how do they you know is it an is it more of a u.s thing i I can really it does raise a really good point because the name gravel it makes it sound very limited Mm. because the reality is that in the uk probably the vast majority of riders actually don't have access to gravel roads Mm. not out the door not out the door but what many people will have access to is perhaps forestry places or bridleways or cycle paths. cycle paths or just lanes that are in bad enough condition that riding a bike with bigger tyres is more fun and more comfortable. Is it more fun on a gravel bike? Or we've already mentioned, you know, cross-country mountain bikes. Why would you not just... They're, they're really versatile. They're, cross-country mountain bikes are really versatile, but your position on the bike is different. And a cross-country mountain bike makes more sense on more technical terrain with bigger tyres, with suspension forks, with a more upright position with wide handlebars and more control. If you're riding along on roads or like very simple dirt tracks, a gravel bike is faster, is more efficient and I think trumps it in every, pretty much every form. Obviously we've, we've done videos on our YouTube channel in the past where Joe and Ruben R.I.P. And he's not uh, dead. He's not dead. And Jack have gone on, you know, gravel events, and and Joe's ridden his XC mountain bike. But Joe is anomalous in his strength and fitness. Mm. But I think for an average person, if you are doing what might I would constitute gravel inverted commas, a gravel bike's better. So you've both ridden some really good gravel bikes. I've ridden some good gravel bikes. I've done a gravel sportive. Uh, that was fun. There wasn't enough gravel. Actually, not enough off road. Some of the off road, the bike just couldn't handle it because it was proper mountain bike so you know what's the furthest you've done off-road on a drop bar bike what's the most funnest adventure you've had i make no bones about the fact that i rather like laos gravel Mm -hmm. bike um it's it comes with a 30 mil leaf sprung suspension fork the shape of the bike is fairly race orientated for a gravel bike but it's it's still comfortable it's inefficient um i've ridden that bike a lot all over the place, go down to Selsby Plain, ride around there a fair bit. I've done some stuff in Iceland with those guys, and it's great. They're from Iceland, aren't they? They are from Iceland, yeah. Yeah. Um, so I've done, you know... Big, and Iceland, quite a lot of gravel roads. A lot of gravel roads. And it was brilliant out there. Yeah. And that's probably, for me, my ultimate gravel destination is Iceland, because okay. it's stunning. And you can, I've done some big old days there, lots of river crossings, minging weather, brilliant. And Matthew, what gravel bikes have impressed you particularly? Um... That's a good question because I've spent as much time not being impressed by gravel bikes. But I think the bike that first kind of turned my head was the 3T Explorer. It launched to much Mm. fanfare because it was pitched as the first aero gravel bike. And in some ways it did things in quite an unusual way because it it went for really, really quick handling over what you might expect of a very long, slacked-out bike, which is what the more adventurous gravel bikes tend to do. But it was the fact of having this thing which on tarmac rode almost exactly like a road bike, but which could also go off-road because it had these massive tyres on it, which really impressed me. And I think that is 
how gravel riding works for me. I live in the Forest of Dean, which is crisscrossed by hundreds of fire roads and gravel and little bits of single track. And a gravel bike is perfect for that because I can ride a few kilometres on the road and then go into the woods and not see any traffic for hours. And that's great. Mm. It makes sense for me. Yeah. But it also makes sense. Um, does it make more sense for the, I suppose, the more adventurous cyclists? In 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 days of days of yore, the touring bike was the the the, the go to bike for the roadie who wanted adventure because they'd put a load of panniers on and they'd ride around the the country lanes of of the UK. I'm going UK centric again, or country lanes of Europe or the US. Let's not let's not just talk about the UK uh, and camp and all that. And now adventure. But gravel bikes have kind of opened up this idea of adventure cycling. Bike packing now, bike isn't it? Packing. It's a new term. It's all come full circle because, mm. in a sense, people have been doing this sort of riding since bicycles have existed. If you go back to the 50s, um, look at like the Rough Stuff Fellowship, mm. great Instagram account, by the way, well worth a follow. They were hoiking bikes up hills. They were riding basically touring bikes, but with slightly bigger tyres than perhaps a touring bike in the 90s might have had. So you, you might have had your 27 one by one and a quarter inch tyre, which I think is 30 or 32 mil. And that is basically a gravel bike. Mm. Like the styling was different and people used panniers and stuff in those days, whereas now it's trendy to do bike packing where everything is strapped mm. directly to the bike. But fundamentally, the idea of doing rowdy, adventurous riding on a drop bar bike is not new. But and what I also find quite interesting is that with this this idea of people are being more adventurous on their road bikes, road bikes themselves are becoming more gravelly. I've just come back from the launch of the new Trek Damani SLR, that's their comfort bike, uh, and the clearances on that. I think you can get thirty eight mil tires into that. You know, thirty five millimeters if you put fenders or mud guards in. That's a big tire for a road bike. And part of the um, part of the the launch out in in Italy. They did a gravel ride on a road bike. It's it's almost the, the, the brands are kind of almost getting there's the crossovers becoming much. The, yeah, tighter. there's a lot of boundary blurring going. I had a similar experience the um, at the Colnago V3 RS launch a few weeks ago. They started the ride out on Tuscan Strada Bianchi, which is gravel road, and they made a big thing about the fact that this bike, which is a high end Italian superbike, can take thirty mil tires. Mm. Now by gravel tire. By gravel standards, that's still a very small tyre. But the fact is that they're thinking in terms of people riding road bikes over a greater variety of terrain. And do you think this trend means that that the idea of an N plus one, so the ideal number of bikes to own is N plus one. The number you have now. Yeah, plus one. Do you have just one bike? One one road-oriented gravelly bike? And maybe a mountain bike, just one bike, just a gravel bike, no. you don't need anything else? I don't think that's ever going to be true because you can always nicheify your own mm. bike collection. It'll always be nicer to ride pure road on a super lightweight road bike or you might want to race and have a ridiculously high-end aero bike or something and then you'll want something with much bigger tyres for gravel, which, yes, you can ride on the road and it'll be good and it'll be 90% as good as a road bike, but it won't be that high-performance race bike. And how do we see the the gravel bike itself developing? I mean, obviously, we're already seeing bikes with well, suspension. Suspension, yeah. suspension. One. I mean, all the things that you're, you're seeing in it goes back to the argument: is it just a, a relatively rubbish XC bike? Mm. 
you know, you start, you're seeing one by drivetrains, you're seeing wider tyres with a range of, of different knobblinesses, seeing suspension, whether it's something like, you know, I mean, Fox have sort of taken their 32 step cast fork and made the AX, which mm-hmm. is a gravel telescopic suspension fork. You've got Lauf with their leaf sprung thing. You've got Specialized with Future Shock. You know, I, I, I think, and then obviously Topstone yeah. um, with rear suspension coming in, I, I think we will see more suspension in gravel bikes because I think gear and tyre technology has probably reached its, not its pinnacle, but it's probably not going to get much more developed. But suspension on drop bar bikes is something that I think we'll see loads in. How about a drop bar mountain bike? A gravel bike. Yeah, but it wouldn't be, would it? You know, like a mountain bike. Well, that, uh, Monster Cross, that's what people, mm. you know, five years ago, before gravel was a thing, Monster Cross was a thing if you were particularly niche. And that was basically people taking, I, I would say, relatively crap 29 frames and then putting a long, big rise stem on it and then putting drop bars on, mostly to, I don't know, because they had a beard and they wanted it to be a bit weird. But. Mm-hmm. It was a thing. And fundamentally very similar to a gravel bike now. Yeah. Although and there are people selling gravel bikes which are essentially monster cross bike Ghost bikes. have a bike that I think Russ has got, his, yeah. uh, you know, which comes with a 2.1-inch 29 wheel in it. I mean, yeah. he's stuck or, narrower things. Or, for example, um, Open recently launched the horribly named Open Wide, which is <laughs> a drop bar bike which <laughs> takes mountain bike times. We are an explicit podcast. So that's fine. <laughs> yeah. I don't know how I follow that up. I, I think, you know, I think... It's <laughs> open from an English-speaking company. Well, Sherrod Vrooman is Canadian. He's Canadian, wow. Yeah. Perfect. That's, that's that's really or he, he may also, he may know dentists. I mean, let's, let's <laughs> yeah, just, yeah, yeah. let's look, pull that one back. Um, so gravel bikes, I mean, overall, we, we are fans. We don't think, you don't have to buy a gravel bike if you don't want a gravel bike. Well, you should try a gravel bike, I think, you know, if, if, and see see what you think of it. But we're fans. Matthew? Yeah. I'm Tom? very happy that they exist. Yeah. I ride a gravel bike approximately 100 times more than I ride a road mm-hmm. bike. My next bike is going to be a gravel bike. There we I know go. that much. Um, it's not a conspiracy. It's not a conspiracy. We'll get onto the conspiracies in a later podcast because there are so many of mm. them. Yeah, we, we'll put our tinfoil hats on. Uh, tell us what you think about gravel bikes. In, 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 you can comment on Bike Radar, comment on the article. You can send Tom and Matthew emails. Uh, we'll don't. give out their text number later. Their text number. That's a thing. Uh, just Bebo me. Just Bebo yeah, <laughs> absolutely. Hope you enjoyed uh, Hope you enjoyed this podcast. Um, and we really, really, really want you to listen again. Uh, thanks for listening. Thank you, Matthew. Thanks, Rob. Thank you, Tom. Thanks, Rob. I thought we might have a message for the, for the oh, listeners. You know? Well, thanks. Yeah, like and subscribe. Like, like. and subscribe. Uh, please rate us five stars wherever you listen to your podcasts. Yeah. Yeah. Goodbye. Till next time. Thank you for listening to the Bike Radar podcast. If you want any more information on what we've been talking about or more news and views on cycling, check out bikeradar.com. Bike Radar.